Hello, welcome to another episode of In the Reading Corner. I'm Nikki Gamble, Director of Just Imagine. And my guest today is author and peace activist Deborah Ellis, who joins me from Toronto. Deborah is well known in the UK for the Breadwinner Sequence, a story about 11 year old Pavana and her family. And it's set at the beginning of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan following the civil war in that country. The book received many literary prizes, including the Peter Pan Prize and the Middle East Book Award. It was adapted into an animated film in 2017 and a graphic novel in 2018. Further books in the Breadwinner collection chart the challenges that Parvana faces during the Taliban years. The fourth book, My Name is Parvana, tells how American troops take control in Afghanistan and their suspicions that Parvana is a terrorist working with the Taliban before she is eventually able to return to her village and be reunited with her mother. As we know, there have been further political changes in Afghanistan, accompanied by retrograde mandates that affect women's rights and access to education. Living conditions have been adversely affected, and so Deborah has written a new book, One More Mountain. We'll be talking about that book today, but first I wanted to know where and when the plight of the people in Afghanistan had first caught Deborah's attention. We had forgotten about Afghanistan in the West. Uh, after the Soviets pulled out, we didn't really pay attention to it for a while. And when the Taliban took over in September of 1996, it hit the papers in Toronto and it talked about the kinds of crimes against women that this government was doing. And that's when I decided to get involved. I'm not much of a fundraiser or not much of an organizer, but I did a few little things. I had this notion that if we know who people are, it's harder for us to kill them. I'm a big fan of an American journalist named Studs Terkel, who spent his whole life gathering interviews of people who don't ordinarily get to share their stories. And so that we can hear much more broadly from, from people. And I thought that one thing I could do to be of use would be to go to the refugee camps in Pakistan and meet with as many people as possible and record their stories so we could know who they are, what they went through, and how we in the West could be of use to them. And maybe the book would raise a bit of money. So I did that. And while I was interviewing people for this uh, adult book called Women of the Afghan War, I also heard the stories of kids, including kids, girl children who had masqueraded as boys in order to go out into the world and feed their families because their dads were either dead or in jail. Their moms were not legally allowed to work and they had no brothers in the household to do that for them. So someone had to do it. And these young girls, 10, 11, 12 years old, would do this incredibly courageous thing. And I thought that that would be a good basis for a children's novel. Now, I just published Looking for X in Canada, which is the first children's novel I'd published. And so I had a publisher who was willing to look at my stuff. And that's where I decided to write the book called The Breadwinner. Again, the purpose of it was to try to raise money and to show young people in my part of the world what other young people in a different part of the world were, were doing just to survive. It may seem like a strange question to ask you after you've talked about the bravery of those young girls who 
were taking big risks by dressing as boys, but doing what needed to be done. But I will ask you anyway, and that is you, you travelled by yourself to Pakistan, which must in itself have felt, I imagine, like a brave thing to be doing. What were the challenges of that? Or were there more benefits than challenges? Certainly were benefits and challenges, When you, although there were moments when I questioned that. We are blessed in Canada. We have many refugees here and immigrants from all over the world, including Afghanistan. So we have a, a large Afghan community in Canada. And I got to know some of the folks there who had people back in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so they introduced me to a few people in Pakistan. And then once you get to know somebody and explain what you're doing, they introduce you to somebody else. And there's certainly a a graciousness in the Afghan culture, a welcoming of strangers that I was delighted to be a, a part of, even in very difficult circumstances. And so people would passed me around from person to person to get their stories on the record. And that's kind of how that all happened. I'm not as intrepid a traveler as you, but I've certainly traveled widely. And one thing that I have learned is that the preconceptions are never exactly what it matches. Actually, sometimes things are not as bleak as I imagine them to be. I'm not trying to diminish that in any way, but somehow because life is there, there are the joys of life that you discover in those places as well. And I wondered whether you had any of your preconceptions challenged when you met these people. Oh, of course, because I had never been in a situation with that kind of poverty and desperation before. We have terrible poverty here in Canada, but it, it's not as bleak. So it was a combination of people living their lives. And when we live our lives, we try to make the best of a situation that we can if we are able to do that. So keeping the, the dirt around their, their tent kind of clean and swept every day, uh, children playing with any kind of thing that they can turn into a toy, women gathering in some kind of way if they're able to do whatever they can to have a bit of a community. Of course, incredible teachers who had been pushed out of Afghanistan and were now in these refugee camps who made schools in patches of dirt and just invited kids to come and learn whatever they could learn, making school supplies out of garbage that they found in the trash bins. Incredible people, but also people who were not doing very well, including people who had seen too much and were virtually catatonic. Moms who had gotten their kids to some level of safety in the camp and then had nothing left in them and were just sitting in the dark in their tent and that was all that they could do all all day. So it's a combination of both bright little bits of life going on. Kids playing with a puppy. That's great stuff. Kids trying on adult shoes. That's great universal stuff. And also people who we've lost because of the trauma that has happened to them. Talking a little from personal experience, I know how emotionally difficult it is to be faced with abject poverty and to feel that you can be useful or make a difference. You feel like weeping, but that is self-indulgent and no practical use. How do you cope and how do you protect yourself while prioritizing and making a difference? Uh, well, I, as a Westerner who had some money in my pocket, I could do some kind of immediate relief to people who would come up and ask me for some money. And there are organizations I could support and the money from the books I was working on was going to go back there. So that helped a little bit. But it was also a, a good education in the kind of levels of poverty. People who had a hut made of mud were a little better off than people who had a, a UNHCR tent. 
people with the UNHCR tent or better with people who had a tent made out of plastic. And that feeling of being in deep war caused poverty, but there also being levels to that. But I think I think the scariest thing about the camps I noticed was that we as, as human beings, we can make plans for our day. We can reasonably assume that we're going to be able to carry out those plans. But in a situation where you are completely taken out of all that you know, and your ability to work, your ability to move, your ability to navigate and build a community around you that reflects who you are, when that goes, there's something that goes within us that is just gone. And I met people who who had no sense that tomorrow was going to be any different from today or yesterday. They'd just been in this situation for so very long. It was was a terribly criminal thing that we have done to people through the kinds of situations that we force them into because of war. And now we're in a situation, we've got fighter planes shooting down stuff over Canada right now. And it's like, people need to just knock it off and talk to each other and stop this because we're really, really close to just blowing it. And it's not necessary. We can do so much better. Moving on to your stories, which are set against this terrible backdrop that you describe. They are, however, character-led. And Pavana, an 11-year-old girl, is incredibly courageous, resilient, and pragmatic. We see the choices that she has to make and the choices that other characters make too. And through observing them, readers might also be reflecting on the choices that they make on a journey through life. And in this way, I suppose the books are optimistic. Of course, after three novels about Pavana and her family coping with those challenges and privations, things changed in Afghanistan. And I think you did have an opportunity to go to Afghanistan. Yes. Was it a place of huge optimism? Or was that tenuous? Because there are hints in your writing that everybody felt that this could come to an end. Yes, it was like they were building things on a peak of a steep mountain. And at any moment, everything was going to get knocked off again. So people were grabbing hold of every opportunity that they could find and just running with it as far and as fast as they could, because all around them, there were signs that this could fall apart at any second. And that is exactly what happened. It's all just gone back down again. So they were anticipating, if you like, even preparing for that strong possibility. I do know that you've been quite involved in IBI, the International Board on Books for Young People, and that they were doing some work with women in Afghanistan. Is it possible to maintain contact? And do we know if that sort of work is continuing? Yeah, there's a a lot of different parts of of work going on in really interesting ways. Part of what's going on now that wasn't as prevalent before when the Taliban were in power is that the internet is fairly widespread in the country, from what I understand. And a lot of people have cell phones or laptop computers. So things to being able to be done through the internet that were not possible before. And the Taliban likes to put out its little videos with the internet. So they've kept that channel open so far. So there's there's some classes going on in somewhat like a secret kind of capacity. And of course, there are so many well-educated, talented people who are now living in exile, who are doing whatever they can do to try to keep that country going in whatever way that they can. So there's stuff going on. It's it's hard to 
figure out what's going to change the situation now or if what's happening with the, the international community working in the country in whatever ways it can, if that's just, okay, we're going we're gonna to do our best to prop people up while hopefully a better day is going to be ahead. But I don't know what's going to happen to make that better day come. Let's move on to the latest book, One More Mountain. This starts in 2021. The international forces are leaving Afghanistan and the Taliban are moving into Kabul. Pavana is trying to get her son and sister who have US visas out of the country. Pavana's husband is driving them to the airport and we recall from news reports at the time how perilous that was for the Afghan people trying to leave. Meanwhile, Pavana is looking after women and girls in her Green Valley refuge. Did you know as soon as the Americans moved out and it was clear that the Taliban would regain power, that you would need to write another story? I think there's all around the world this this sense of horror and feelings of, of terrible powerlessness that this awful thing was happening. And all the many, many people who had been working along with the Afghan people to try to make things better in that country. And so I was certainly one of those people and I feel like I'm so limited in what I could do, but I thought... I could write something, do a podcast, some way of bringing in money quickly. And of course, I'm not a good enough writer to just kind of do that. So it it turned into a book that was properly edited and and put together by Groundwood Books in Toronto and then in other um, uh, publishing houses, including the UK. So it's going to raise some money and this is what I could do. I want to talk a little bit about a theme that's run through all of the books, about individual choice and responsibility and how this theme surfaces through the actions of different characters. Rafi and Mariam, Pavana's son and sister, at least at the beginning of the story, show us two contrasting ways of thinking and behaving. They're both artistically talented, but, to quote the narrative, Mariam might think she was special. Rafi knew that he was not. There's something here about the social and collective responsibility being more important than individualism. Is that what you were telling us? Yeah, maybe. I think that's that's true in a larger sense. But I kind of like the way the character of Miriam worked out, because in the beginning, she's like, like super selfish, right? But Parvana has also worked really hard to create a space where her sister could be selfish. Let there be at least one selfish woman in Afghanistan who gets enough attention. In a way for Parvana, that was an act of rebellion to make her sister be able to feel that way. And of course, as the character moves through the story, Miriam, we realize she's got much more of a backbone than we thought that she did. But yeah, like none of us are immune from any of this stuff at any minute. Life, as we've seen in Turkey and Syria in the last couple of days, can just get thrown completely off what we think it's going to be. And we have to be ready to know who we are and and how we're going to react in the situations. And in Canada, I think one of the, the reasons the books has resonated with kids is that even though in Canada we have a different life than most people that live in Afghanistan, we still have children who have to make courageous decisions every single day in many different ways, some in big ways, some in small. And when we see examples of courage in literature, then we can think, okay, I can be like Parvana in this situation. Maybe I can be a little bit stronger than I think I am. That definitely comes across to me. I do really get a strong sense when I read your books 
that you're speaking to young people for who they are, that they don't have to be in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. We all face uh, those kinds of choices. Yeah. One of the characters I found really interesting, even though he has a small role in the story, is the first Talib soldier that Pavana encounters. It emerges that she's been his teacher, and it's evident that this has made an enduring impression. The meeting between them invites us to reflect on the nuances of people's responses when they're faced with difficult decisions. It's rarely a black and white choice. I knew that I had to have something like that in the story because it's very easy for us to go into us and them. And we're we're all good, they're all bad. And life, especially in a situation in a country that's been at war for 20 years, is very complicated and people become one thing or another for complicated reasons. And I wanted my young readers to go away from that scene with her in the Talib, really thinking about that. Who is the enemy and is there really an enemy? And are there things that are more important that we share than that are opposing us? And until we start looking at those things and asking those questions, we're just apart. We need to not just be apart. We have to find things that bring us closer together. Uh, Very moving that he goes away saying that the poetry will never be forgotten. And in that scene, it was also a statement for Parvana, because she's at a place where she's thinking her whole life has been wasted. And uh, that affirms that the things that we do, the good that we put out into the world, we don't always know where it's going to land, but it lands someplace. And she needed to hear that. Can we talk a bit about history? Pavana's father, of course, was a teacher of history and literature. And through your books, we do learn something about Afghan history, the history of invasions and foreign occupation, and that these must in some part be responsible for the current crisis. From your encounters with the Afghan people, have you found them to be interested in how history plays into their present situation? And do you think that history is a burden that prevents us from moving forward? Or can our understanding of history help us to find a solution? Oh, what what interesting questions. I can't, of course, speak for the knowledge of Afghan people, but the ones I I talked to, yeah, they have family who were lost during the Soviet occupation or the family roots, of course, go way back. So that's a living history for uh, a lot of people there. Is history a burden? I think it is a burden and it continues to be a burden unless we do something to change the trajectory of that history. In Canada, one of the things that is very heavy on our heads right now is that there are unmarked graves being found in former uh, residential schools for uh, First Nations children who are forced to go there. And we own that. I know that there's a school just up the road from where I live in Brantford, where they are finding unmarked graves. And I grew up near that school. So were there teachers at that school, didn't close down that long ago, were there teachers there who went to my parents' church, right? Did did we go to the fair with some of the people who worked there? It's, It's a living thing. And it's a burden until we do something to change what we have done and make it better. It's interesting to hear you talk from a Canadian perspective. 
In the UK, I don't think we have the best record of teaching world history, not even the history of the countries that we've had direct involvement with through colonialism or the histories of the UK's diasporas. We don't, for instance, learn much about Canadian history. I wonder how many people here know about the Heights of Abraham and are part, therefore, in the history that you're talking about. We simply don't have a good grasp of world history. But yet it's all connected to us, isn't it? We're all connected to it. I like to grasp the hot topic of wearing the burqa. It's something that generates heated arguments on both sides, those that are opposed to it being worn and those that say it's their right to choose. In your story, the burqa is often a source of problems for women, preventing them from moving freely, safely and quickly. In the same way that other rulings about women's clothing have kept women close to home, such as the historic tradition of foot binding in China. I've often heard uh, women express the view that it is their right to choose to dress as they please. But I've also known and heard from women who feel scrutinised and under pressure to dress this way. Um, I will soon be talking to a writer, Naima B. Robert, who herself chooses to dress fully covered. And we also have a lamentable episode in which one of our influential politicians said that burqa wearers were like letterboxes, not at all helpful. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your thoughts. Uh, I'm not a Muslim woman. Nobody should be able to tell anybody how to dress. If someone wants to be covered, that's their choice completely. I got nothing to say about that because it's none of my business. When the government tells us what to wear, that's a different situation. That's a bit of a problem. There, there were women, and there probably still are in Afghanistan again under the Taliban, who used the burqa as a method of rebellion and resistance, carrying things under it that can't be seen and so forth. And I heard about women who under the first time of the Taliban, they would smuggle cameras under their burqas into the soccer stadiums when the tortures and executions were being done, and then secretly film them or take pictures and then secretly smuggle them out of the country to get developed, which is how we learned about what was going on at that time. So it's been a tool of both oppression as something that the government has forced them to wear, but also a tool of rebellion and resistance. I want to talk a little bit about hope. Because you are a writer for children, I do think that in itself is an optimistic endeavour. Uh, One More Mountain ends on a note of hope. Realistic, but hopeful. Uh, at one point in the story, when she's at her darkest moment, uh, Pavana thinks that hope is a poison. I suppose I'm asking, is it better to live with hope a hope that may never be fulfilled or without hope, knowing that you can't be disappointed. We all give in to those times when we don't have hope. And I'm kind of hovering around one at the moment, actually. But we can't live there. I mean, if we need to visit there for a bit, fine, but we got to get ourselves out of that ditch. Otherwise, nothing will change. Nothing will get better. We have to look at what we have done in the past to make things better. And what we are capable of, we are capable of such beauty. We need to remember that and get ourselves out of the hopeless ditch and just keep trying to move forward any way that we can. Otherwise, there's no hope then. If we don't do that, there's no hope. And that's what children's books can 
most yeah. definitely do for us. Yeah. I wonder whether you could tell us just a little bit about Canadian women for Afghan women. They were doing like gangbuster stuff in Afghanistan, funding all kinds of great projects. I got to see some of them when I was there. It's awesome. Now they're focusing on school in a box so they can get educational materials delivered secretly to people's homes, which includes money for internet services, laptop computers, things like that. So they can plug into teachers in various different countries and get education that way. It's much more difficult now. We have laws in Canada that don't allow registered charities to donate goods to Afghanistan because it's like they would be cooperating with the Taliban. It's made it very difficult for uh, Canadian charities to do that. I think other countries are able to do more humanitarian stuff than we're able to do at the moment. Do you think there um, will be another book about Parvana? Do you feel at the moment that the chapter is closed and that something different will have to happen before we can revisit her story. Well, I hadn't thought about writing another one, but just as you say that, I had this vision in my head of Parvana and Shazi as two old women together. So maybe when I get to be an old woman, um, I'll write about them being old women as well. And that might be kind of fun to do that. Deborah, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.